0: Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to your weekly episode of Exhaust, the podcast about why nothing seems possible. I'm here with my co-host, John. And today we are going to talk about supply chain stuff. We're going to return to some stuff that we talked about in the first episode, actually. Um, but this is a segment we are going to call Two-Piece, and it is where we pick two pieces and we talk about them, talk through their themes, if they're related, try to understand them, and we hope in our talking about them, we give you guys some stuff that help you make some decisions for yourself or make things clear, even if you disagree with us at the end of the day. Um, Obviously, I hope you agree with us because uh, I don't wanna get flooded with hate mail online, but you never know these days. So the first piece that's up is one that uh, John brought to my attention. Um, It is called Why It's So Hard to Find Dumbbells in the U.S. by Alex Abad Santos uh, from Fox.com. And since John brought it to me, uh, why don't you run us through what it's about, man?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because I kind of experienced it firsthand um, before I saw this article. It was a couple months ago. And extremely late to the game, I decided I ought to buy some weight for my house because it's clear we're going to go back to the gym anytime soon. Um, So I was looking online and I was like, okay, I'll invest in, I don't know, a kettlebell or something like something to, you know, add some resistance to some of the training that I'm doing. And there's just literally nothing like Amazon totally sold out you can find some stuff, but it's like really weird and not clear if it's going to be like poisonous or not, you know, like some kind of some good old
0: lead weights. <laughs>
1: yeah. And it's like way overpriced. And I was like, Oh weird. I guess, you know, the pandemic just had a panic buy like toilet paper. It'll all cool off soon. We'll be able to get some stuff and still like, there's nothing really. Um, and that's what these guys in Vox apparently figured out as well. Um, but unlike me, they looked further into it. And I guess the big interesting thing about the piece to me was that weights are literally manufactured nowhere else except for China. Um, what was it? 90, 95% of the weights that exist in the world, like the weights for weight training all come from China.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's basically like, I mean, even though weights are kind of stupid, you basically need like a forge and other stuff to make them, you know, even if it's small. Right. Like that's just the way that works. And we don't really manufacture that much anymore. So, um, of course, as it says in the article, 95 percent of the world's dumbbells are made in China. Um, And so, of course... Uh, we're having uh, some prolonged issues in getting dumbbells as this guy points out um, or really anything uh, like Bowflex, all these other companies he talks about are just out of stock.
1: Yeah. The interesting thing, it looks like the, um, around the Chinese new year, everything shut down, everybody went home and that's when the virus over there was kind of in full gear. Um, so so uh, sorry suppliers were going to be shut down for a little while but that's fairly usual at that point um they would always do that for chinese new year to some small extent and so people who needed to buy from those places already had accounted for that but it was extended by a couple extra weeks um some companies were afraid that they just weren't going to get any stock and those were companies that had prepared by seriously doubt, you know, that at that point we had already been doing like huge, you know, increases of capacity on dumbbells as of like December or January. So that got massacred pretty quickly with people running to Amazon or your local sports authority. Um, it was interesting. He goes into how the factories couldn't open and once they do, it takes, a month or so to get the products made and get them to the port. That means like the port in China. So from I need to make a dumbbell to like getting it to ship to you, that's one month. Then from China to the United States, um,
0: and then it has, to at at the this it has to go oh, through yeah, the Panama Canal. Oh yeah, if it's going Canal. to the East Coast, it goes <laughs> yeah. to the Panama
1: Canal. I remember looking at this because I hate flying, so I wanted to go like see can I go to Asia on a freighter one day. Um, Without having to fly for that long because it just seems terrifying and it seems like you (laughs) spend like two to three weeks at sea So I'm gonna guess something like that from California to China Depending on how many stops you're making and where you're gonna go So it's like a couple months out from I needed to order these, you know, new dumbbells to being able to actually have them And like he points out as soon as they hit the market in the United States, they're gone in under five minutes people are just watching the website
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought so I've found all of that interesting. So the nitty gritty on like how much China manufactures, which seems to be a lesson we're learning over and over again. That's something I learned when I was looking at medical supplies um, a few months ago and other things. Um, But uh, there's also something sort of meta interesting about the article. You know, Vox has a rep for sort of being like the wonky, you know, professional managerial class centrist liberal publication that does like deep dives now we might you know we wonder how deep this goes this piece doesn't really go that deep um and that's what's meta interesting about it they basically point out so yeah china makes all this it's going to take a long time and uh we bitch about it on our slack channel and it's hard and we have no idea when it's going to end and that's weird uh what's interesting about to me about that is it's just sort of like oh yeah like yeah i guess there are no manufacturing jobs here huh you know anyway it's hard to get dumbbells for me who works at vox to work out at home
1: yeah and i think it just goes to show that i like i would have believed that like 60% of all dumbbells are made in china like definitely but i think in the back of my head there's a lot of like sort of like a fantasy understanding of how the economy probably functions in a lot of ways where I fill in a lot of blanks with what I think would make sense. So like, I still imagine that there's like, you know, like artisanal Nordic like weight manufacturers out there. Or yeah, you know like maybe I mean? that's
0: where maybe that's where Rogue gets their shit. And it's like yeah. their higher end dumbbells on their website because they're like made in the US under like, or like some
1: German company, you know? Like, of yeah. course, some German company would still be making it. You know, like you just
0: imagine that there's yeah. this. wherever has reigning strongman champs is probably still making
1: <laughs> dumbbell yeah.
0: equipment, you figure, at some level. Like,
1: oh, yeah, Adidas, they make the shoes so that, you know, it's German. It must It just must work like that. But it yeah. doesn't actually work like that. And the idea, like, I guess supply chain diversity, you would just assume that there's a lot of it because, you know, that's kind of the reigning ideology that we live under is that like competition will create kind of like a certain level of robustness.
0: Right. And I mean, I think that's one of the things, um, I've talked about this book before, I think on here, Barry Sealand's, the end of the line, uh, the rise and coming fall of the uh, global corporation, um one of the things he talks about is how that there's that robustness is largely a fantasy because it turns out that there's usually like one manufacturer that makes stuff for every other company that purports to be in competition with all these other ones so really there's like a monopoly somewhere else um that creates the almost like tertiary layer of retailer um or service provider competition Um, on the other end of it right and that's basically some of what we have going on with even dumbbells in this case is that it turns out they all come from one place and how that came to be uh is going to be adjacent to our second piece which is from the latest issue of american affairs um I am a uh, subscriber. Um, (laughs) uh, I look forward to it every time I get one in the mail, every three months. Um, And it's called Who Lost Lucent? The Decline of America's Telecom Equipment Industry by Robert D. Atkinson. Um, And if you know him, you probably know him from the book he co-authored with Michael Lind, which is an apologia for things like monopoly and economies of scale called uh, Big is Beautiful. And what this article goes through is, frankly, what happened to the American telecommunications industry. It was an industry that he points out at the beginning. We pioneered almost uh, 100 years to the day after um, America was founded, right? Uh, All the way from
1: Alexander Graham Bell.
0: Right, exactly, exactly. In 1876, uh, the first patents are created to birth the telephone industry um, under Grand Bell. There are some splinter offs at the offset that create like Western electric and a couple others. Um, so American telephone and telecommunications or whatever at and stands for uh, doesn't stand on its own um, for very long. But we were at the top of the game, even into the seventies, um, And then that stopped happening. And then by 2008, Lucent closes, so does Motorola, I believe. Um, And this whole industry uh, that, again, we pioneered, um, no longer exists in America. I mean, he asks, you know, in 10 years, if nothing's done, we'll be writing, Uh, who lost Boeing, who lost Pfizer, you know, um, who lost GM um honestly i wouldn't be surprised if we lost boeing because i think boeing lost boeing but that's a whole other issue um that's sort of related to what's going on here um so i wanted to get john what did what was your take on the piece just overall
1: yeah if i had to give it like a tagline it would be one of the, it would be similar to how they used to do with movies, like the amazing true story that you would never believe because it's really like, really difficult to believe that everything you read in there is true. Um, It's like watching in real time a country de-develop itself. as you know what I mean? Like, because it's just like you said, up until the 1970s, we, You know, we had already done plenty of damage to our telecoms, equipment manufacturers, but they were still running and still basically um, had the competitive edge.
0: Yeah, they were the top of the heap, right? Yeah. Globally. No competition.
1: I mean, there was competition, but no competition in a way. Yeah. Um, And then it's sort of amazing how quickly and how rapidly that is destroyed kind of by the direct action of the united states government
0: (laughs) yeah Um, action and action and inaction in certain ways um and he does he does some work to point out like okay so some people say it's some corporate culture problems uh and then um he's like administrators like (laughs) the business administrative historians like to point that out and economists like to say they just got crushed by competition um and his general point is like hey those are those just aren't sufficient explanations for losing an industry that vital that big and frankly that fast after it being part of america so long and it was a political problem at the end of the day now towards the end of it and we'll get into this as our conversation goes on he goes into how china features in this how Huei um features into this i think i'm pronouncing that right am i
1: uh, it's something like that. Huawei. I don't really. Kauai. Okay. I think it's what they it say on the news. That's all I know.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Um. Uh, I'm out here sounding like a conservative in 2003 saying Iraq. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> now these guys over there, who way? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> They're up to something. Um, and uh, he goes into that towards the end of the piece, um, but. A lot of what happens centers around antitrust legislation and how it's enforced by the Department of Justice, sometimes against the business establishment's ideas of what should happen, the current presidential administration's ideas of what should happen, um, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a whole trajectory of how we got there, right? So I wanted to fill in a little bit of backstory because I have been doing a ton of work trying to understand what happens with the New Deal in America and why we have such nostalgia for it, right? So I've had to learn a little bit of industrial history, a little bit of political history, and I've still got a lot to go. But here's what I can figure so far. Um, Christian Parenti, was on behind the news with doug henwood a couple weeks ago to talk about his book radical hamilton which tries to reevaluate how we understand hamilton as an industrial policy type of guy right and he had sent the book to Adolf reed um obviously a colleague of his, um, and Adolf Reed said, yeah, you know, if I were to ask my history PhD students a question after reading this book, it would be, since our founding, the dominant strain of economic development has been some form or another of Hamiltonian government interventionism, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, the dominant ideology has been Jeffersonian yeoman farmer, small firm entrepreneurialism. Why is that? And that speaks to something that is actually deeply ingrained in American culture that I think materialists have to take a little bit more seriously Uh, when we're looking at why there's a problem with the idea of big firms that you could then many leftists hope nationalize and then socialize, right? That's sort of a familiar telos on the left. So a good way to look at that is to look at what starts to happen um, under Teddy Roosevelt, when he starts to break up the trusts Um, his idea is that they're anti democratic because they consolidate power. There's not nothing to this argument, right? Like, There are some problems that has to do with price domination and forcing other competitors out, things like that, that seem to be creating real problems. And it speaks to a very deep vein in our history that's skeptical of major consolidations of any sort, um, perhaps except for the military industrial complex, but that is its own conversation. We're gonna sidebar for now. So by the time we get to the New Deal, we have had, um, it's important to think about how we see the state, right? The state isn't some neutral arbiter. Instead, it is a terrain in which different factions of capital and factions of wage labor, depending on their various power uh, amounts of power, sort of duke it out for what's going to happen. And that's what happens with the New Deal, right? So let's take a look in at, I think it's 1932 or 1933. The Roosevelt administration creates the um, National Recovery Administration. Uh, And the National Recovery Administration is the perfect encapsulation of how this class war got fought out between uh, the government itself as an entity, monopoly capital, non-monopoly capital, and labor, right? Right. So labor is excited for the National Recovery Act because it puts in Article 7a, which allows people to organize, et cetera, et cetera. There are some major problems with it that they end up running into. Um, And then non-monopoly and monopoly capital are having a fight about to what extent the National Recovery Administration actually helps monopolies, which force out, of course, smaller businesses and firms. Now, it turns out, I think the sum total of the New Deal does benefit American monopolies because we need to move into a wartime economy uh, by the time we decide to get involved in World War II towards the end of the 30s and the 40s. And that's ultimately what saves the New Deal and postpones the argument between labor monopoly and non-monopoly capital and the state Um, and its various entities for who has control or non-control over the commanding heights of the economy. At the end of the day, this is a bad deal for labor. In many ways, people look back on these as halcyon days. They don't understand them as inherently compromised in a way to uh, disadvantage labor in America. That's another thing. It does solidify monopolies though. But as I said, Our anti monopoly sentiment is really baked into who we are, and it's materially represented by a substantial enough portion of capital that they can fight against these monopolies to have greater access to markets, to not be totally crushed by these huge titans. And one of the things that Atkinson lays out really well is by the time you get to the 70s, there is now a great skepticism about. Monopolies, and this comes through things like Ralph Nader's uh, consumer protections. Uh, And this is also when we start to see what we now call neoliberalism, whatever we mean by that. In this case, what we mean by that is that the government's job isn't to uh, strategically craft industrial policy towards the nation's benefit, but rather to create, paradoxically, the proper natural conditions for competition to flourish. And it is this uh, two-sided ideology that ends up existing within the Department of Justice. And that is why in the 70s especially, though it starts a little in the Truman uh, administration, they start to break up AT&T, which eventually leads to the creation of Lucent Technologies uh, a few decades later.
1: What I think is really interesting is they like you said they begin that in the truman administration but one thing he makes clear is that the department of defense has clear objections to this and at that time they are listened to and heated and then again sometime in the 50s i think or the you know around the 50s or the 60s it happens again and they're heated that this is a bad idea to strategically cripple um an important american industry, and their complaints are registered with enough force that the department of justice is not interested in pursuing the suit. Um, and then by the 1970s, that is no longer true. Um, Mm -hmm. the department of defense continues to register the same complaints, but they no longer matter.
0: Yeah. Interesting enough. Interestingly enough in the 1950s, um, the DOJ gets part gets part of its way. Right. And, um, because they're worried about pricing. That's the main thing they're worried about, despite the fact that AT&T, like all these companies, uh, AT&T can point out that they're charging public utilities and stuff like this less than what some of their competitors are because of the advantages of economies of scale. In other words, they have so much shit, they have so much institutional knowledge that they've built up over time that they do not have to worry about expending new capital to accommodate um their sellers which means the price is lower that's sort of like a layman's way to understand that obviously i'm not an economist but the dynamic is simple enough for me to grasp
1: yeah i think at that time they were able to show that they were pricing things like four times cheaper than like something like the nearest competitor
0: yeah i think to pg and e in california um, yeah which is is now in full nightmare mode um (laughs) as i live out here um interestingly enough the doj says that, hey, in the interim between now and when we can next go after this Titan, why don't we keep compiling evidence even though there's no need to? And I think this is probably when John and especially I had the moment where I was like, this is insane, actually. This is insane because it's not, (laughs) it's also not good for the public in a way, right? Because to break up telecom means that you have to, put up new telephone wire and things like that, which is necessarily going to increase the price because the price is going to have the reflection of the upfront capital cost of putting up new wire. Right.
1: Yeah. And it, I think for me, it was just sort of overwhelming because it's really difficult to see what the point of that is. And It is, I think, one of the biggest things for me um, coming at it from the side. Like the first that I knew of any of this was that uh, I knew about Bell Labs because Bell Labs is where some like computer people, nerd heroes were kind of born. Um, Like Dennis Ritchie, Brian Kernigan, a handful of people from the era of like the 1970s and the 60s who were responsible for a lot of things, but one of those was creating the Unix operating system, which eventually has a version of it uh, in Linux. Um, so like, oh, those guys were pretty interesting to me, and I was into that stuff. So I was like, oh, we're, you know, what is this Bell Labs place? What do they do there? And the way Brian Kernigan explains it is that, you know, operating for most of this part of the 20th century, at and has a regulated monopoly on phone service. So... What they essentially have is a guaranteed rate of return and they're able to slice a really small portion of that off and give it to Bell Labs and say, okay, here you go. Like, you will now kind of be the R&D arm of our operation. You'll research ways to make telecommunications better and in return you can exist and have what amounts to full autonomy. Um, Kernigan says when he worked there, all he had to do was write up a little report every year saying what he had done that year. And they would use that to figure out how much they were going to pay him next year. And other than that, like no oversight, you know, no regulation, no managers (laughs) sitting around asking them. I think the way he put it was no one was asking them to save the company by next quarter because the company was so secure that they were able to take an extremely hands-off approach to Bell Labs and the result was that the people at Bell Labs, who were some of the smartest people, you know, probably alive at that time, were able to pursue a lot of projects that had no immediate financial utility, but that ended up being, you know, extremely important. And he actually lists a few of them here. That, mm-hmm. you know, they're responsible for cellular technology, digital switches, fiber optics, lasers, the transistor, solar cells, satellite communication, undersea cables, and you know, of course the Unix operating system. I mean, I mean, that's I just think so about wild. the Transistor. Yeah, like...
0: I mean, the Transistor is like... Uh, I think Jacobite Magazine, the sort of like right-wing, like post-political thing, uh, in their masthead, they just say, like, nothing has been as important. Like, the Transistor has had a more important world than, like, bicameral parliamentary <laughs> representation, <laughs> you know? So, the, absolutely.
1: And... I think that that's what I knew first and knew best and so seeing and I kind of knew that like something somewhere along the way happened and people no longer believed in regulated monopolies and so Bell Labs fell apart but I didn't really know the story and so coming into it and watching them like look Bell Labs in the eye and like rip them apart piece by piece just was sort of like are you serious like you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I understand, but at the
0: same time, are you serious? Like, <laughs> Right, right. So, and some interesting things happen, right? So basically the fact that Europe has a telecoms industry, this is like Ericsson and whatever. Um, I think Ericsson is what, either Swiss or... They're Swedish. like Swedish, yeah. yeah. Swedish, yeah. And Which he talks about in this piece and that they don't have quarterly earnings ideas. There wasn't the shareholder... By- Uh, representation they've been owned by like one family and the national bank for like decades Um, and they were just like
1: family is like committed to not walking away so
0: yeah they're like no like this is as one of the family members said like isn't it good to have somebody with a little cash when times are rough or something like that (laughs)
1: somebody's gonna stick around yeah yeah
0: pretty much (laughs) um you know they're still committed to their idea of a nation state uh they uh france builds us all Alcatel, um, which ends up buying Lucent and then gets bought by Nokia. Um, and <laughs> <in> a weird sort of way Yeah. Which <laughs> then dies because at, after the two thousands, like, you know, Lucent's basically just like dead on its feet. Um, but, uh, a French minister says something interesting. He says that the Americans at some point just ended up having a strictly financial interest in this, not a political industrial one, whereas we always saw acquiring these things as part of our like national interest. In other words, we stopped being strategic about what we wanted to do, right? Um, and there's sort of like a before and after Cold War way to look at this, right? Um, John, did you want to like walk through your ideas about how the Cold War helped shape some of these decisions that led to the death of American Telecom?
1: Yeah, it definitely for me I wasn't born at a time when I would have had the Cold War mindset. Um so it's always been something that I hear about, you know, from like your parents who talk about hiding under their desks at school for the atomic bomb drills and stuff like that, but for me it's sort of like a weird historical artifact. So when I'm reading this piece, I'm thinking like, well, this is all insane. Like, couldn't you guys open your eyes a little bit, see what was going on? Um, you know, what were you thinking about? And it does not really show up in the piece that much, but I later on realized like, oh, what they're thinking about is like the USSR. Like probably pretty much what the vast majority of American administrators care about or thinking about and are afraid of. Um, you know, we constructed a world. We divided a world into several different parts in order to say that the Soviet Union is this all separate part. You know, the Soviet bloc that we have to contain, wear down, and you know, eventually triumph over. But this being kind of the sole concern of so many, you know, planners and technocrats, uh, people in Washington and elsewhere, it's really easy to see how. Nobody would be that concerned whether the big telecom companies are in Europe or in the United States, or even if China starts developing some of them as we talk about later. Um, To us, it would be like kind of a big deal because I think we have a lot of concerns of our time, which are like, you know, since 2016, pretty much everybody's aware whether or not they agree that there is a really large sentiment in the nation the deindustrialization was kind of a disaster for a lot of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
1: I think that we're really we're really keen on noticing stuff like that now. And I think when we look back, it'll appear all the more striking to us when people don't seem to care, like whether or not the U.S. is able to maintain certain industries, be they strategic mm-hmm. or just mm-hmm. useful to the American public. But yeah, at and to put time.
0: Yeah, to put a little bit more of a, of a point on that to, um, is to say that like uh, this is sometimes difficult for an American perspective because we're so provincial, um, mm. though the Cold War in some ways made many of us, especially technocrats and people towards the top and obviously people in the CIA, what have you, uh, not so provincial in their concerns. So after World War II, obviously Europe is destroyed. And Germany is carved up. It is without sovereignty, basically, once again. And we need to figure out what to do. And now we have the problem of the Soviet Union. You know, the Cold War starts to kick into gear for a whole host of reasons. One of the ways we're going to contain them, these guys think, is if Western Europe, the non-Soviet bloc swath of Europe, Europe, rebalance from World War II and is wealthy and powerful. Um, that this will create essentially a firewall in Europe against the Soviet Union. So it makes sense the Marshall
1: Plan, right?
0: Right, the Marshall Plan. Yeah. So it makes sense that we sort of force AT to make it possible to access some of its patents and its ideas. This disempowers it um, in some way but it also uh succeeds in containing for the vantage of you know these administrators interested in these war games in containing uh the ussr uh, because the cold war is very real and it's pervasive in how america sees itself um and understands what it's doing um i think the bitter irony is that it created and encouraged let's say some habits that ended up betraying us in the end.
1: Yeah, and I have to imagine that the same kind of logic was at play. And he covers this when we um basically build the Japanese telecommunications industry with our own specialist knowledge from the ground up again. And we we had a more general concern too just to reactivate the Japanese economy, I think in the same way that you're saying we were interested in Europe um, basically right as soon as the war ended, that was kind of one of the first things people were thinking about over there was, okay, like Japan needs to get back on its feet. Like we need to reactivate the general economic sphere which they operated, which extended, you know, from Manchuria, Korea um, and Taiwan, just the various Japanese colonies where they had set up. So one of the interesting things over there is that they placed their heavy industry in the colonies whereas traditionally Europe placed heavy industry at home and colonies were just for resource extraction. The places like Korea were extremely overdeveloped um, in order to set up this kind of autarkic zone of Japanese imperial economics, which were all completely state run. So you had kind of like, you know, the Korean war had not happened yet. And I think there is this idea that like, oh, we're going to set up shop in Korea. We're going to keep the Russians from taking over there. And we're just going to reactivate the Japanese imperial economy as it existed and plug it into the world Mm -hmm. and have this like operating zone of Soviet deterrence that we can kind of rely on without having to babysit too much.
0: Right, exactly. Which then kind of makes clear some of the at least (laughs) uh, superficial motivations around Vietnam. little bit more clear and like what we were doing in korea in the 50s a little bit more clear um obviously i have some thoughts about whether or not those were worth it or a good idea or actually done for those reasons or not um but maybe that's for a whole separate series of episodes perhaps um (laughs) but uh either way it Ported into something that was already indigenous to Japan, which was a type of, as Atkinson phrases it, uh, techno-nationalism. Um, but you could already see some of the dynamics that would come back to bite us uh, once we started to deal with China, in that Japan uh, was not just going to um, make its major industries vulnerable to the West at all even if we were doing direct planning with them. It had no interest in letting the West totally penetrate its market in that way. Um, And that it understood the things it was making uh, as part of what would make Japan wealthy and secure in the long run.
1: Definitely worth an episode, I think, just to think about that stuff, because it's really one of the most fascinating things about them is basically from the Meiji Restoration, as soon as the oligarchs who supported, you know, the Imperial Restoration were in power, they immediately set about getting a hold of resource extraction, um, like technologies and manufacturing technologies to rapidly industrialize. And, you know, one of the interesting things that I did not know until recently was that there was no stock market at that time like imperial japan did not have a stock market but they just had state-run banks that directed the flow of like all capital
0: that's so, so insane to imagine at like yeah <laughs> uh, i'm, a, I'm so american speaks, i'm like what's life without stonks
1: yeah <laughs> i think it speaks to the fact that they definitely already had an ingrained institutional um bent if you will, Mm -hmm. toward Mm -hmm. being in full control of the way that things developed. And I think in general, too, this is kind of like developmental economics in a way, as it has sort of recently, I think in the last 20 or 30 years, kind of come to call itself as this strain of economic thinking, which says that a developing nation is basically screwed without some form of protectionism, and something to develop into a mature, robust industry that can be competitive globally. Um, And, you know, this is what they say happened in South Korea. This is what, you know, happened in Japan, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it's a way of thinking about economic development that You know, some people argue it was indigenous to the United States at one point, whether or not ideologically we ever fully encompassed the fact that we operated this way or not. I'm not sure. Like you were saying, we may never have believed in this, but there was certainly a time when uh, a certain level of protectionism of our infantile industries was what we did. And as soon as it was no longer necessary for us, the claim goes, we stopped believing in it. I think that's generally what um, people like the South Korean economist Ta-Jung Chong say is that
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: there's a kind of like, you know, the stereotypical kicking down of the ladder where you protect your industries until they're globally competitive and you're dominant. And then you say, I love free trade. Like, <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> why don't you love free trade like yeah, hey little why guy why don't you love free, free trade?
0: trade yeah we're the hegemon why don't you love free trade trade with us bro
1: and um, i think that why aren't places... you rugged
0: entrepreneurs dog i know <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: and i think that these places you know like some of them living in extreme poverty after the war for quite a few years like you know in the case of south korea like what was called the worst police state in asia for many decades, Um, building something out of nothing was something accomplished by these methods. And I think that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this is an experience that China has been having as well. And it's something that we don't really find ourselves, like you were saying, it's not easy for us to understand, like this mindset. I
0: I mean, I think COVID has really been a, a gut check on that, right, because now, There are Vox articles that's like, actually, this thing has to make it to this port and then move through the Panama Canal in my entire (laughs) life. So it's important to contrast that with like sort of what you and I grew up with, which is like a book called The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman, which is basically like none of that shit matters like that's all yesterday's news who Mm -hmm. who worries about how it gets to the point you just hit that mf innovate button and do a technology and you're all good baby you're all good you can just buy those derivatives honey don't even worry about it don't even worry about it like you're an empire it's okay do what you want you want to throw up uh mcdonald's out there i mean i was listening to um uh an interview with uh julius krein the head editor at American affairs and alpha Bunga Bunga. And this goes a long way to explain like how we don't think like this, right? There's a lack of practicality. And he said that he worked for a contractor that was trying to create the new Mumbai in Afghanistan. This is a place without an electrical grid. And he said, (laughs) by the time that they could get internet from, I don't know what's going on with my lights. Hold on. Uh, By the time that they could get internet from, uh Iran all that would happen was the kids of various warlords would come in and use their computers to watch porn because they were the only computers in the region fast enough (laughs) to handle video
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's a lot of interesting stories I think I heard about a business here that I think they harvest wood here they ship it to China to be treated for like using construction projects and then it's shipped back here and it just so happens that you know like the various things make that like kind of more cost effective but like the whole underlying construction that makes that seem more cost effective i think is usually the hidden variable um we only experience it as like oh it must be because labor is cheaper or something but there's never really any investigation as to like well how does any of that make any sense
0: yeah it's not even part of our discourse of like how policy works, or it's just like how are you going to create jobs? And it's like uh, I'm going to cut taxes, and everybody's just like, okay.
1: Yeah, I think that's literally the only like suggestion for actually attacking the uh, unemployment or yeah, the, gotta yeah, cut the, the unemployment that payroll figures. tax, Baby, gotta cut yeah. that
0: payroll tax. Get rid it's of
1: it. like somehow it just keeps working though. Like you know we keep surviving.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, And it feels like we're doing less and less of that now. And so I think we should move to sort of like what happens with uh, China when we get into this. But that's a whole post-Cold War triumphalism problem, right? So we have, right, if we're going to chart things that start to happen, we have this whole um, antitrust thing that's just sort of part of the American experience, let's say. And then we start to have the consumer rights movement that starts to happen. Then we have um, the rise of what ends up being called neoliberalism. Um, And then we win the Cold War, right? Uh, So, how could you lose, right? And when it comes to being like, okay, we have to do these joint ventures with China where we basically have to train their entire workforce and give them all the tools they need to basically be able to do this that's fine and we can also offshore some jobs there too because that's fine because clearly we win we rule and they're idiots like the chinese communist party has no idea that we're low key uh doing an inception thing where they're going to wake <laughs> up after having all of our manufacturing and realize that they have a liberal democracy on their hands Right, we as as Barry C. Lynn puts it, we took them for suckers. Obviously, they're not. That's an incredibly condescending way to deal with them. But that rationale had a huge impact on what happened.
1: You Um, really do have to think that they thought there was going to be like a color revolution or something. It was going to be sort of like the Eastern Bloc again.
0: Yeah, yeah. You were going to like with the Solidarity Party in Poland.
1: Yeah, like they. You have to imagine that that's what they were like thinking. Is like okay, like we're going to create a middle class and that's it. Like they're done.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's it. They got no idea. Like, bro, they don't even know. They don't even know we're about to do a middle class on them. Um, And then there's a middle class
1: and it's like, wait, they don't,
0: what's happening. (laughs) Yeah. I think um, uh, G not too long ago, put out a thing that was just like entrepreneurialism is how we're going to move into the future like everyone, you know, to create a prosperous China has to be basically a middle-class entrepreneur now. yeah. And it's like, so... Like, wait, that's a little bit too instrumental for my taste. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, want the, uh,
1: I want the middle-class entrepreneurship that's the good for sure. itself.
0: Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I think we were naive about how that got handled. So we were totally fine with dealing with um, some of the trade asymmetries that China... Um, put into it. And frankly, some of the outright intellectual property theft uh, that happened um, with China, um, all while continuing to balkanize AT&T until we get loose in technologies, which is dominant until it's not. It hits the the dot-com bubble burst towards the end of the 90s and things like that that create major problems for the telecom industry. They never really recover because they're also dominated by a quarterly earnings obsession. Um, that makes it so they can't really do R&D. And then once China's more aggressive approach to getting its own telecom uh, stuff out into the world um, kicks into full gear, this is Huawei. um, It's really interesting that... Yeah, they crush it, yeah. Because
1: I think clearly, like, hyper um, quarterly earnings obsessed companies are capable, like just in maybe in general of doing R&D and like innovating and stuff like that. And that's certainly the case. But one of the interesting points that he makes is that um, it's really a different industry. And one of the huge strengths of old AT&T was the fact that it was directly connected to its on the ground suppliers and um, those companies. So they had a direct line to like the actual, like their consumer base and the people who were directly interacting with the consumers and those companies could then signal to big AT&T which direction they should be heading Mm -hmm. with the way that they were developing their technologies. So there was, I mean, you could call it an information problem, but they had a really good system for handling the information problem and it seemed to work well for a while Mm -hmm. and they were able to, innovative but i think in anything that's like extremely capital intensive and extremely um, infrastructure intensive like you have to Mm -hmm. spend a lot of money and build a lot of stuff it's going to operate on maybe like a different kind of temporality than iphone releases are going to operate on
0: Mm -hmm. and well and as you get broken up and basically things that used to be part of you now have to compete with you it creates upfront capital costs that just aren't sustainable. Right.
1: Yeah. And there's, um, you know, like you say, it becomes more and more important to have access to other markets in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think as he says in the article, the offer they couldn't refuse was you can come to China, you know, like growing nation, lots of customers, lots of Mm -hmm. money to be made. The only, the only catch is you have to set up a certain amount of your manufacturing here. You have to work with Chinese companies, like at least a Mm -hmm. Chinese company, you and that company have to set up a joint venture together Mm -hmm. and you're going to impart a lot of your technical knowledge to that company. And those are the terms for doing business. And a lot of the companies, apparently they were interviewed, I think by the Rand corporation, Mm. Uh, who asked them, like, uh, you know, what did you think was going to happen when you did that? And they were like, oh, we knew that eventually they would kick us out and they would just be setting up their own shops. But we really didn't feel like we had any choice because, you know, we needed access to that market. So, like, it was either that or do nothing and die.
0: Right, exactly. It was just a, it was a field of bad options for them Um, and poor incentives at the same time.
1: Mm -hmm. you know
0: people try to buy their way lucent tries to buy its way into new markets this is also like part of a thing that starts to happen in the 80s and 90s where people start um buying companies as a way of doing (laughs) r&d you know (laughs) like like oh you invented that you're ours now like it's the it was the big mergers and acquisitions uh free for all that happened and
1: the idea of everyone does everything like just diversify
0: Right, the Swiss as Army knife. As you idea. can, yeah. yeah. Synergy. Um, <laughs> right. That's the big sort of word. So, I like the way he put
1: that. Everyone does everything wasn't actually a real thing. Like,
0: Yeah, no, that wasn't. <laughs> no one serious really believed that. Um,
1: the people who did it are gone now or like, you know, very chastened.
0: Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Um, though I don't think Thomas Friedman is just chastened at all. I mean, that no. guy is... Uh, I mean, yeah, that guy's head is a balloon full of sand. But um, (laughs) yeah, so, I mean, look, the China conversation is difficult, right? Because um, there seem to be two options for how to talk about it. And one is the sort of, um, they're their own evil empire. Uh, Their country is an open air prison um and there are mortal enemy um and we need to go to trade war and perhaps kinetic war uh, if uh, and definitely cyber war um in the future, <laughs> right um and then there is the sort of like uh more left uh, thing on it which is like um that's racist so no. Yeah. I don't think either of those are particularly helpful for appreciating the uh, uncomfortable and difficulty of the moment because it is true that America needs to, like, re-industrialize if it's going to do things like have a Green New Deal happen. I mean, I've got a piece coming out that long after this podcast will air about why the Green New Deal is bullshit. But, like, if it's going to have build out its nuclear fleet to handle climate change, which is what I think it should do, then it's going to have to reindustrialize, And it might have to do that for a few other industries, and that's going to put us in a weird place with China. Right? Like We're yeah. not in a place where uh, the international relations are cozy enough and uh, where we can just sort of uh, let things roll or do whatever we want. And they aren't either. They have their own pressures at home. They have their own interests, the Chinese Communist Party does, not necessarily the Chinese people, for stoking anti-Americanism, just like Trump does for anti-China sentiment, you know?
1: Yeah, I think it's often unfortunate that you can't really talk to people that much about this stuff because they are already like plugged into some cycle of news or another Mm -hmm. or some kind of information feed that's already kind of got them geared up to be triggered about something or other. And, you know, I think what we're trying to do here is we would just like to understand things first and then lay out our like simplistic narratives about it afterwards. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. (laughs) But like
1: the other way is, you know, it doesn't feel like it's going to help you come to an understanding of anything. If what you're really concerned with is like beating your chest, you know, one way or the other. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's probably well put to say that, you know, I don't think any of us will be extremely well served by, like, overly identifying with, like, one nation state or another. Mm-hmm. Like, it sort of might be beneficial to us to be able to discuss this as if we were just our own human beings who aren't identical either to the government of the United States or China that seems to be like where the conversation often goes is yeah. if you'll say like, Oh, let's talk about this issue. And then the person will either be like, you know, they hate America and like, I have to, I, the government have to stop them.
0: You yeah. know, like <laughs> yeah.
1: my opinions are going to be enacted into policy and law. Right. And like, I this must, must be-
0: post, I must post my way into victory over China. And you do, and you get the
1: sort of exact analog of that with another group of people who are sort of like, you know, anyone who feels even a little bit weird about the CCP is just displaying, like, a latent racism, Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that, you know, like, if you're not an apologist for literally everything that they do, you really shouldn't be allowed to speak because you don't understand where they're coming from and what they've had to overcome. And, you know, like these things are justified because of this. And it's this weird, big, like, it really is weird because suddenly you realize that this whole new generation of people are tankies and doing the weird mental gymnastics of like actually Stalin didn't kill that many people come walk with me and we'll look at these numbers together. And like,
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like a whole new generation of people are doing it. And it's like a much more diverse coalition this time around.
0: Yeah. With and also way less, even way less power than they had the first time around. Because again, like manufacturing is gone. <laughs> the labor yeah. has been crushed like, um, and the cold war is over. Right. So it's really more of a, of a LARPing type of thing. Yeah. You know, and so like the next thing that we should probably talk about is like obviously we sort of walked you guys through what's happening in these articles. We'll put them in the show notes. You can read them for yourselves. I hope that our explanation was uh, helpful and not redundant in that way and what we could offer. But what I want to say is that why we're bringing this up wasn't just to lay out um, you know, problems with the discourse on China, but also to, at the beginning of this podcast, lay out like what we're interested in. Um, And one of the things we're interested in figuring out is, again, answering the questions why nothing feels possible. Some of those answers are going to be cultural, and we're going to get to that. We'll have a guest coming up, um, Ian Corey from the band Lambda Forms and the podcast Lambda Forms Radio, who's going to talk to us about the future of music. We'll probably end up talking about TikTok and other things like that, too, because you have to. Um, But uh, some of those explanations are going to be political and material. You know, one of the reasons why if why it feels like things can't happen now um, is because we have shed a whole suite of capabilities to the benefit of a very small group of people within a narrow window of time that dissolved what were almost ancestral or let's say canonical US entities. That's why at the end Atkinson is like or not at the end, but within the article, he's like, are we going to say this about GM? Are we going to say this about Pfizer? Are we going to say this about um, Boeing? Because whether we like it or not, whether we like the idea that there's a nation state, you know, whatever our political sympathies are, uh, you're going to have to be able to do some things and people are going to have to work jobs that produce things. And that's just the way of the world, no matter what system you live in. So why does it feel like we're dead in the water? Well, it might have something to do with the decisions that have been made over the course of the last few decades that have left us with the ability only to launch YouTube entrepreneurs, um, financial wizards who just basically orchestrate stock buybacks uh, and nothing else, um, and a whole class of wonks and technocrats that are underqualified and borderline uninterested in the things that they profess um, to have mastery over. And so that's why we want to look into those things, because uh, if those people uh, screw it up so much, uh, then why don't we give it a try and try to understand it? (laughs)
1: Yeah. I'm not typically that interested in talking about what is downstream from what I know some people really like to get into that, but I feel like it's satisfactory enough to say that they're related, um, Mm -hmm. culture politics, economy, whatever. And they, you know, it makes me remember during the 2016 election, you had the new genre of YouTube music, Trump wave hit. And I think the finest example of the genre, um, see like i think a bunch of f-16 like flight shots and um you know like clips from like the miracle on ice and like oh michael jackson's God. thriller like rapid fire like and then <laughs> uh like you know synth wave music and trump saying and we will make america great again and like yeah. it's just building and like you know i showed it to our last guest, Mike, who's a Canadian, and he was, you know, probably in tears because even though he's not from the United States, I think that's just like potent stuff to look at now for us, especially delivered in a really extremely direct way because uh, you put it really well. Like there's, you know, let's say you wanted to be an aerospace engineer. um, So you go to school and you survive that degree and then you go to work in industry and you realize that the vast majority of aerospace companies know that they can treat aerospace engineers like total garbage and no one can do anything about it and you're going to be working like you know 14 18 hour days sometimes you're not going to make as much money as your friends who went into cs and work at google and just The simple fact that you kind of got interested in like building things that fly is enough for them to be able to deeply exploit you you know maybe not in the same way that like a fast food worker would perhaps find themselves exploited but it is a form of exploitation in that your desire to be in that industry is enough that they can now count on the fact that you're not going to leave or at least enough of them are not going to leave That they can be made to do whatever for low pay and and work in increasingly dysfunctional settings like Boeing, as we mentioned. Um, It's probably not that fun to be an aerospace engineer for Boeing. I think maybe like a handful of those guys get retained, you Mm -hmm. know, year long throughout the company. But most engineers get hired, work on a specific project, and then fired as soon as they're no longer needed um, to attend to the bottom line and not have you know, don't have too many people on the payroll when, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, these margins are getting razor thin or something when you're selling airplanes, but it's like, we just can't afford to treat engineers like well. And so I think that that's like something you can learn by just going onto Reddit and like looking at an engineering board and just watching people talk about their jobs, which is how I learned about it, which is, you know, people say, I like aerospace engineering. And then aerospace engineers are like, well, you better really like it because here's <laughs> yeah, the life you better you're fucking about to love have. it buddy
0: yeah yeah and
1: it's sort of like okay like you know that's the way the world is but like if you think back to like in 1940s America 1950s America like imagine being like a teenager then and thinking like I want to be an aerospace engineer and then some guys like son you're going to help us fight the soviets like yeah yeah totally and you're yeah. like yes I will I'm going to build like cool airplanes. We're going to save the world. Like it's going to be amazing. And one of those is clearly
0: yeah. yeah. you get to make a shitload of money comparatively.
1: You could probably have a nice house out in California somewhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like, so the reducing the amount of possibility in just one really small sphere, like we're talking about aerospace engineering, but you can see the way that that kind of destroys sort of like a cultural possibility around it because mm-hmm. you and imagine an industrial for like, one yeah and you know I think maybe in this case we can say that like the culture is going to be downstream from the material world mm-hmm. the material realm where these things are are happening and you know I think that's a big part of it like there used to be like that's sort of what the nostalgia is. is like there used to be in America where I could say, you know, I had a lot of life paths open to me and they were all sort of felt meaningful and like I would have to work hard but I knew that if I worked hard I would have a good life and I would be contributing to something greater than myself and I would be well compensated and like these were all the things that you were supposed to believe in and I would be able to like sit down and you know watch tv with my family afterwards and it would just it would all feel like a nice life a meaningful life or whatever and i think that like large swaths of that materially are being cut away uh removed and you know like if i had to imagine like what the pole comic would be like the first panel would be the like happy family man aerospace engineer mm-hmm. He's, like with his with his kids and he's like, yeah, son, the USSR just fell. And it's because of daddy's rockets and they're like, <laughs> we love you, dad. And then the next panel is like, he's, you know, in the office for like two days straight working on some, like uh, working on building a component where the other part of the component is being worked on by like some outsourced firm and they're going to put it together. And it's not going to work right. And, you know, a bunch of people are probably going to die when that plane crashes. And meanwhile, his And everyone kind of knows like,
0: that. They at least know that's in the cards while they're working on this thing.
1: Yeah, like they're fully aware of it. Like they know they're building total shit and they hate it because they're engineers. So they want to build good things because that's mm-hmm. sort of the whole point of that pathology of being an engineer. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. And
1: meanwhile, his daughter is like an OnlyFans star and <laughs> his son just watches like, you know streamer girls all day while playing you know one of those like
0: whatever yeah whatever Dota it is. likes
1: or whatever now and just completely like like you can imagine the uh you can imagine the image so well because it's what we live today i think in many ways and mm-hmm. i think that people realize that like oh things suck they didn't used to suck maybe they weren't great and maybe they were always heading this way, but things still didn't used to suck the way that they suck today. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like a huge um level of like sort of cultural or material and cultural paleontology or archaeology one can do yeah. to look at like what exactly is undergirding just the the ennui, the uh the lack of
0: yeah, that's despair, frankly. I mean yeah. You know, like, ah, oh man. I do want to say this. You know, one of the things that um, I want to just if we're going to do a type of archaeology, which I think we're going to end up doing a lot of on this show, is that we get to understand how the decisions that we made when things were quote-unquote good, you know, the halcyon days everyone fondly remembers, Uh, that led us here you know the problems that were already baked in that made some of this inevitable surely not all of it but some of it because what i realized is that the nostalgia itself is a distancing from the reality of why we can't do certain things this is my instinct about how our relationship to the new deal why can't we just do a new deal there are all sorts of reasons why we can't do that in the same way. And it will take a whole new idea of coalition building and things like that to make anything that looks like that possible as someone who supports those kinds of things, you know, and we'll probably do a whole episode on new deal nostalgia, but it suffices to say that things are bleak left or right. And while we're recording this, uh, the nation is still in turmoil, and that'll likely be true when we release it. Um, We hope to provide clarity on how we arrived at such a place in hopes that that type of understanding will give people access to thinking more seriously about what we can do from here. because if there's anything worth learning, it should be able to help us with that, you know?
1: Yeah. And I think that's kind of what we were getting at when we were, you know, it's the same thing with China, I think is the same thing with the sort of mixture of nostalgia and despair is like really, you know, I don't want to say ideological, but like a really simple, perhaps ideological sort of understanding of Mm -hmm. what preceded us and it just turns out that that understanding is like not going to equip us to really understand anything about what we're actually going through or like what decisions are even open to us to make
0: Mm -hmm.
1: all it really offers us is like getting emotional about something or something else
0: yeah yeah which is easy to do because things are sad and things are hard and like, look, this is a podcast about why things don't feel possible. Uh, this is not about a podcast about why things aren't possible, right? <laughs> like, That's an important distinction. Um, so hopefully some things are, we don't know what they are yet. Uh, you'll likely know before we do. Um, and if anything is, please let us know about it. We hope that this was interesting. We hope that it was helpful. And we at least hope that it was fun. Uh thank you guys so much and we will see you next time see you next time